Welcome to the Obey Podcast, where we see through mainstream narrative. No propaganda, no bullshit, just the truth. And now, here's your host, Matthew Keck. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Obey Podcast. So, I, I want to recognize something up front about this show, and that we constantly are straddling a line between saying things that are very radical, like how I touched on the dehumanizing nature of the minimum wage and how it priced people out of their work and how the government's destroying people's lives by picking winners and losers, and how e- even in theory that that's absolutely disgusting. So I, I straddle that line of very, very radical, um, absolute hatred and disgust towards anybody who works as a government official. Um, and then I, but then I try to combine it to some extent with actually being informed on a, on a consequentialist basis. So I, I think it's a non-starter if you admit that the government has, you know, the, the, to, to, to admit the government's entitled to a certain amount of your wealth and that they, they should be able to steal from you to enact the policies they want because if you don't like it, you should vote harder. Like, I, I reject all of that out of hand, but in, in real life, only so many people share that intuition. A lot of people have lived in a world with taxation. They, they've lived in a world where they pledge their allegiance to the, to the United States every day for, you know, all of their youth. And it's not their instinct to think the government's inherently legitim- illegitimate, and it's, it's kind of a tough climb to get there. And to get there, a lot of times you have to show them how bad the government runs. So, so with that context, um, I want to do an episode now where I, I break down an article that comes from a person who's a more traditional conservative that I have a lot of respect for, and I'm going to kind kind of dive into um, his arguments and and give them a serious like the the to, to give them serious and genuine consideration they deserve. But but I do want in the back of your head that in the end, even if his proposals worked optimally, you still have all these issues about consent and the, the actual legitimacy of government that I think aren't, aren't things that should be shrugged off. I, I, I just still think it's worth addressing the, the considerations that a lot of people who are status, they, even people who are small government oriented, they, they still um, have certain arguments that I feel like are worth kind of taking apart or at least pointing out things that, that, that seem incorrect or seem like leaps. Um, so for that reason, we're going to go through an article from National Reviews magazine on uh, the week of February the 8th. And this is a piece by Ovik Roy. And Ovik Roy is a guy who I, I have a lot of respect for. Um, I am a little biased because he is one of the few people in the government um, think tank sphere that I've actually met in person when I was a naive um, Republican at the time. It was, I think, January of 2017, right after Trump was elected, right after Trump took office. I went to um, the um, a meeting, uh, well, a conference in D.C. for the National Association of Business uh, Economists, and I, w- I was a student at the time, so so I went. I, I, I took a trip down to D.C., um, stayed in Airbnb for a few days, and I went to this conference and felt all smart. And it was it was mostly professionals and very few students. Um, 
So he had a panel with Jared Bernstein, who I think might actually be on Biden's um, cabinet at this point, but he, he was definitely somebody who was in consideration for that. He's on Bloomberg News all the time, arguing for generally democratic policies. They had a panel together about Medicare and Medicaid, and they kind of offered um, did, they, they offered views that were uh, obviously dissenting, given that Ovik Roy gives a, generally a conservative take on things. Um, and then at the reception after at the British Embassy. I'm name dropping that because it makes me sound much more educated and intelligent and respectable than I am. And, and people can listen to the backlog of this podcast to know that I'm a degenerate radical most of the time. But I went to the British Embassy. I was wearing a suit and everything. And I actually ran into Ovik Roy there. And I mentioned that I saw his panel earlier and he recognized me as a young person. So he, um, so he talked to me about the current politics of the time. And I didn't even know he was a Republican based on the panel since it was so wonky. Um, so he, he's definitely a person who does most of his work focusing on healthcare, and he generally writes policy papers. Um, I, I actually read like a brief pamphlet he put together that's um, a compilation of his Forbes articles from around when Obamacare was put into place. And he, he's done some analysis on that, that that goes into the wonky territory about how things were poorly rolled out. So when I saw that this piece by him, I thought it was worthy of consideration and discussion. So, so this piece is called Restoring the Conservative Conscience. I'm going to link to it in the show notes because I guess that's a, a thing I started doing with the Mitt Romney episode. Um, so, so, so to, I guess, generally summarize the piece, he, he starts by talking about the, the Berlin Wall getting torn down. He talks about Reagan at, when Reagan was president and how that, that's kind of like um, when you actually had a principled ethos of conservatism in, in power. And he kind of talks about how in the last 25 years, we haven't seen any real conservative policy other than tax cuts, um, which is very fair because I know Trump's presidency is most recent in our minds. But if you look back to George Bush, well, what, what, what did George Bush do besides wars? Well, he did a tax cut that everybody talks about, um, but he actually expanded Medicaid. I think that was Medicaid Part D, if I, if I remember correctly. And um, he, he wanted, he suggested privatizing Social Security, which was when he, I think he was a lame duck, or it was his second term, so nobody really cared, and they didn't do anything on that front. Um, so, so, so what notable policy has there been other than tax um, cuts? Not, not, there hasn't been a lot of pro-liberty policy passed. Okay, so, um, so, so it mentioned, he, to quote him, he says, Ronald Reagan succeeded because his policies improved the livelihoods of people in every state. After 9-11, the 2008 financial crisis, the opioid epidemic, and COVID-19, more and more people are losing confidence in the fairness of our economic system. So he, And then he mentions modern American conservatism is at a dead end because both its intellectual and its political co coalitions have unraveled. He talks a little bit about like the three-legged stool of conservatism, which was talked about a lot in the 20th century. So that was libertarian, social conservatives, and anti-communists. He kind of talks about the Berlin Wall falling. We don't have that direct communist threat um, looming over, so it, it doesn't unify the other two legs as much. Okay. He says that we need principled language that can attract public support for a more liberty-oriented approach to government aid. Um, and then he breaks down... Based on a Cato Institute, I think this, uh, yeah, so, so, so this is a Cato Institute survey. He kind of breaks down what the Republican coalition looks like, and he breaks it down into three Trump clusters, which is American preservationists, which is 20% of Trump voters, anti-elites, which is 19%, and disengaged, so 5%. And then um, all these, these groups, which is 44% of Trump voters, actually lean left economically. 
And then he mentions the two clusters of staunch conservatives, which is 31% of Trump voters, and free marketeers, which is 25%. And those ones are the ones that prioritize reducing the size of government. But he'd also note that the staunch conservatives um, emphasize restricting immigration over most issues. So how how do we go about uniting these factions? He he name drops John Stuart Mill, Frederick Douglass, and Frederick Hayek. and then he says we can apply the 19th century classical liberalism to 21st century America through three core principles, equal opportunity, personal freedom, and patriotism. And if you're somebody who considers themselves more of a libertarian or anarcho-capitalist, equal opportunity might even be ringing some uh, alarm bells when you hear that type of uh, light language. Okay, so, so, so then he goes on to say, like, imagine you were actually talking about... Um, to the average voter, and you use conservative language, well, maybe you can actually suggest certain policy proposals that would be good for people when it comes to things like health care. And he mentions that there's a Hayek-style universal health care um, proposal, or, or I guess, uh, idea. It's, it's, it's not super modern, but it's probably very relevant. And, and, and knowing Alvik Roy, he probably has studied that significantly more than I have. Um, and then he also mentioned certain ways of working with police reform that that would appeal to normal people without taking like necessarily the defund the police line. Okay. Then he goes on to talk about, um, how it's, uh, okay. How, How it's become, it's become like more popular to blame things on market fundamentalism in conservative circles or right-wing circles, but the opposite is true. Government regulations and cronyism conspire to keep prices high and enrich well-connected institutions at the expense of ordinary consumers. Okay. And then, um, okay. So, so let's talk about, yeah. Okay. Um, and one last part from, from, I guess this portion of his piece is he says the value of this new three-legged stool is that it maximizes the size of the coalition that supports self-government kitchen table voters, suburban moderates, libertarians, and pro-market Democrats all want a country in which every American, regardless of race or ethnicity has a fair shot at success. Not all these voters are aligned with conservatives today, but they could be in the future. Just as we have seen with school choice, investing in the success of low-income Americans of all races can attract new voters to our cause and enrich the moral purpose of our work. And I, I guess this is worth noting that then he talks about Barry Goldwater and how Barry Goldwater famously dissented against the 1964 Civil Rights Act and how at the time also um, other famous conservatives um, pr- pr- pretty much called everything about that like an abuse of power and similarly were, were critical of certain civil rights rulings by the Supreme Court. Um, and then he pretty uh, kind of says not 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 to demean him, but he kind of says we we need to atone for this. So in general, his idea is, look, Republicans don't have principles anymore. A large proportion of them are anti-immigrant and anti-market. We need a new coalition, and he he says we should put forward generally free market ideas, and we should embrace immigrants. So so he, he, here's the. So, so here's the big issue, and I, I guess this ties into a lot of my views on a lot of things. And th- this comes to the, the issue of, I guess, um, politics and democracy and how it's inherently difficult for a political party to stay on message when they're trying to win voters. And I, I think part of o- Ovik's analysis, the, like, like one of the first questions I'd ask him is, I, I, I would probably say, given how polarized parties are, even though the average voter is not particularly informed, do you actually think that the Republican Party is a brand that is redeemable to, say, ur- urban um, 
or more 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 urban ethnic areas because you, you can talk about hey republicans can have a free market plan so they actually have a comeback when democrats say oh you're just going to repeal obamacare what are you going to do instead well if they had an actual comeback then maybe that could be convincing to people but in the end if they, they continue to have ad hominems slurred at them, just like they did when Mitt Romney was president. Well, then it doesn't really matter if they have a plan because the, the brand is so tainted that, that it doesn't matter what they do. So uh, I, I, I kind of am sympathetic to his high-in-the-sky ideal. And I think if I heard this uh, argument you know, four or five years ago, I, I, I'd be on board because I am pro-market and I'm, I'm, I'm pro-immigration. I don't see any problem with um, people voluntarily moving here and then people freely renting out their property to them. I don't see why the government should have any role in that. So, so I'm sympathetic to those ideas, but by, 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 by saying we, that the Republican party should not focus on immigration, you're, you're, you're pretty much saying that they, they should stop uh, focusing on their largest, most vocal, um, most highly charged and most um, excited to turn out to vote contingency. Um, and, I mean, I don't agree with that prior, the, 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 the policy preference of those people. I'm not a protectionist, and I'm not an immigration hawk. But the thing is, if you turn them off, then they might not vote for Democrats, but they're not going to turn out. And w w what it's come down to is it's come out down to two polarized parties who can get their party to turn out more. So, so to some extent, I, I think what he's saying is he's kind of taking a libertarian conservative view on what policy should be. So he's more pro-immigrant than, say, than say Ben Shapiro might be, but he's still, um, I, I assume he's not completely for open borders. And then he does suggest some government policy on healthcare, but it's still significantly less than either m most Republicans were suggest would suggest or definitely most, um, or, or definitely less government than what, what most left-wingers would suggest. So he, he, he's making progress on that front. And this is just kind of the incrementalist line of thinking. And, and it's, it's enticing when I, when I first read this piece, I'm like, hey, this is an agenda I'd vote for. But unfortunately, I, I just don't see why um, somebody would expect this to be politically palatable, especially with how um, unenthusiastic people generally were for Mitt Romney or any non-Trumpler-related figure in 2016. Um, so, so, so in the end, I, I think what, what, what this piece really is, is um, it, it's, it's in my mind what, what a good Republican is, right? They're, they're, they're getting 80% of the way to an anarchist to, to the extent that they're some, somewhat a minarchist. And if, so, so this conversation that um, I, I like how um, on the propaganda report, I've heard Monica Perez kind of make the point that if the constitution was a genuine compromise, she'd take that compromise. And she's an anarcho-capitalist, but if the constitution was how people actually governed in the real world, she'd, you know, sign on to it and she'd be okay with, 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 um, ha having that type of government over her. Unfortunately, as, um, I've heard some people say, like I've heard Michael Malice say it and I've heard a Sarkist say this on, on Twitter. Um, the constitution is just a gun free zone, uh, sign. So <laughs> in the sense that if somebody wants to ignore that, the, the, if, if, if you have a gun freeze on like a school, it doesn't actually stop the school shootings from happening, which is the whole famous um, example there, especially in like the last t 10 years. So, so in reality, the Constitution hasn't really actually done any good job of keeping people to abiding by the Constitution. And our elected officials, especially over the last 30 years, but throughout a lot of history, it's, you don't have to think, you, you can think back as far as like FDR and, and Hoover and people like that. They, they, they blatantly ignored the, the Constitution. So it's, it, it is easy to, 
I, I guess, fallen to the, the idea of be, being one of these idealistic conservatives that, that think, hey, you know, we, we could get a coalition together because a lot of people want these small things done by government. And then as long as we limit our scope to this and we have people who self-govern, we can be a working coalition. But in reality, I, I don't think, well, there's definitely not been a time in my life, but I, I, I don't foresee any future where the government actually has that kind of willpower and the people don't actually demand the government to do more and more. Because now whenever we have a crisis, the first thing people look for is the government to do something. And anytime something bad goes wrong, it's like, well, we expect a congressional hearing and we expect some le some legislation to come out at some point about that, especially if it persists. So uh, un unfortunately, I, I just don't think that's possible. And I, I, that's one of the things that drove me from being a minarchist is in practice, I just don't think minarchy is actually possible. I, I think in any kind of democracy, when you give power to people, they end up being mostly uninformed, which is reasonable. I'm not informed on enough issues to make uh, executive decisions. I don't know enough about agriculture policy to really vote on it. But guess what? I, I'm, I, I'd vote on it. If, I, if, if I'm voting and there's a question about agriculture policy, I'm going to be voting on it. Or I'm going to be voting for an official who's going to make a decision on agriculture policy, even though I don't understand their stance or if it's valid. So, so this is the inherent problem of democracy that we face. And I say this as a person who's probably more educated than the overwhelming majority of voters. And that's not to pat myself on my own back. It's just because I read more than a handful of books a year and I listen to a lot of news. So, and I, and I follow certain, certain studies and I'm, and I'm curious about these topics. And that's just because my hobby, it's not, doesn't make me any better or worse than anybody else. But, but this is the problem with, with the representative democracy. So I appreciate Ovik Roy trying to work from the inside. He's a guy who d does a lot of technical work on it. He is a person who, when conservatives actually do decide at some point that they, maybe they do want to, if, if they do grab the levers of power and they, they, they do decide to put in some kind of plan, hopefully Ovik Roy is one of the people who is trying to come up with a relatively small government solution that is better than whatever the Democrats plan to do. And, and, and to, to that extent, I'm thankful that people like him exist. But I still think there's this pie-in-the-sky idea that you can cobble together a free market coalition and actually get people to, instead of taking handouts from the government or instead of t t taking certain policies that they assume would be there forever, like Social Security, they'll actively ask for things to be rolled back. And, and I don't see that happening. So so, so, so in the end, I, 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 I guess the takeaway, if you're thinking about people who have this point, because I'm sure there are there is somebody in your life who has this type of view, in, in the end, they're, they're an incrementalist, but if they call you as an anarchist an ideologue, you have to remember that they're just as idealistic as you are, because the government that they're envisioning also hasn't existed in their lifetime. Some will say it existed under Reagan, but the, the, there was arguably a lot of big government policies under Reagan that have just been glorified because he shrank the government to some extent in some capacities. So, so I wouldn't glorify it too much. I mean, he still had a lot of people going to jail for nonviolent drug offenses. But in, in their mind, the, the constrained government that is possible has never happened. It's just like saying that um, what, what, it's, it's just like saying that an anarcho-capitalist is idealistic. Um, because the, because their system hasn't happened. So, so, so you have to remember that their ideals are just as lofty as yours, but I would argue they're even l l less likely just because if you have to think about the ring of power and when people have the ring of power, do they often give up the ring of power? And I think the answer is no. So the, the, the incremental steps of getting back to a, a minarchy, I think is less likely than even anarchy, because at least if everything all crumbles to pieces, if the government bankrupts itself and the, the dollar loses all its values, 
you can have anarchy come up from that rebel because it's all devoid of government. But the second you get the government rolling, you, you end up with all these big inefficient policies and you try to fight them back. But, but it, it, it comes down to a war of words and the, the wonkiness that, that, that is valuable and intellectually stimulating doesn't end up mattering because people are going to squabble over immigration instead of forming a free market, small government coalition. Um, okay. I hope I didn't sound too blackpilled there. I, I hope I didn't, I hope I didn't bum you guys out. I, I, I didn't intend on, I, I guess, just, um, really hitting home how unlikely it is. And, and I do want to say, I mean, I prefer his, Ovik Roy's idea over, about a government over Joe Biden's any day of the week. I think it's much, much more preferable. But we have these very intelligent conservatives still thinking that there is a war to be won with people that don't actually have many things in common with them. They, 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 they think democracy is legitimate, and they think there's ground to be made with people who are willing to use the government to steal a bunch of their money to enforce policies they don't like and, and that the conservatives don't support. And if people are going to dominate me like that, I'm not going to sit here and take it and hope that a free market coalition emerges. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to say that all these people are scum. If anybody has those ideas, they deserve the worst. And that we need to be outwardly vocalizing how illegitimate our government is every day to remind people that it is not a good thing that you pay your taxes. You're, you're, you're submitting your money to, a, to an organization that uses it for evil, to steal more, and to bomb people and kill people. And then they, they, they take the money. And they use it to uh, pay the legislators that decide to take away more of your money in the future, all while devaluing your currency and forcing you to, you know, put, put your money in the stock market where the stock market crashes and fluctuates and then everything, your whole livelihood is at risk. And what, why is all this? It's because the, the government can do what they want because they have all the guns. Well, they don't have all the guns. They have a lot of guns. So they have more guns than you do. So I, I, I just want to put, put that out there for anybody who... Uh, hasn't jumped from the small government minarchist wing to the anarcho-capitalist wing. But that's where the, the distinction truly, truly happens. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, as, as much as I am sympathetic to Ovik's views, he, he still he still isn't, um, he, he isn't resenting of the government, right? He, he said one of the planks is patriotism. And I, I just do not see the appeal of being patriotic to a regime that is often run by people who hate me and just want my compliance, and they would like to take more of my money and force more things on me. And I, I'm sure there are people who are more optimistic that think the fight has to be worth fighting, and you have to fight in these honorable ways. But as far as I'm concerned, these people have done not, nothing but dishonorable, disgusting things to me as, as a young man. I mean, if I was if I was 50 and had been... Had, been taken advantage of for decades i'd be even more infuriated but i've already been taken advantage of them for for by for 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 long enough i i don't see any reason why i should tolerate this i don't see any reason why i should pay lip service to the legitimacy of democracy and the 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 benefits of incrementalism i i I have to hope that things crumble instead of hoping that an unlikely coalition comes together So, so so on that note though um, def- definitely take a look at the piece, because as strong as my words are right now, when, when I read this, it's it's really interesting to think about. It is interesting to think about, and it's not even for, if you find yourself squarely in my camp or squarely against my, 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 my view of, of government legitimacy, um, it's still a good piece worth thinking about, because we're going to have to think about the Republicans' path, path forward. Um, at, at the time of recording, I still haven't listened to Trump's speech at CPAC, but he just had a I think like an hour and a half long speech where he's probably running again. 
um, in 2024. And the 2022 midterms are going to be in full swing sooner than you know it. And that's going to be shaping the direction of Republicans and conservatives in the future. So even if you disagree in terms of what is going on in the world around free around you, this is food for thought. Um, so for that reason alone, I suggest people read it. And you should always read stuff that even you, even if you might suspect that you disagree with it. Um, okay, guys, <laughs> the, I think that one ended up being longer than I expected. But I hope you got something of value out of it. Um, I know it wasn't super heavy on policy. It was more political analysis and um, I, I guess pessimism. <laughs> but but I, I, I hope you um, got, got some value out of it. Check, check out that piece on National Review. Um, so... Uh, if you enjoyed this, feel free to check out the backlog or future episodes. You can find me on Twitter at Matthew T. Keck or at the Obey Podcast. Um, you can reach me either of those ways with any comments, questions, or just want to reach out and say hi. Um, and you can check out the podcast Beyond Talking Points that my, myself and a co-host, we talk about all kinds of politics, political issues. Um, we talk about philosophy, and he's more of an anarcho-communist. I'm more of an anarcho-capitalist. He's he's somewhat um, sympathetic to progressives. I'm not at all sympathetic to progressives, so we really hash it out. We've done all kinds of episodes on things like our political ideological foundations and our assumptions, and we've talked about stateless democracies, um, as you know, paradoxical as that could sound. Um, he's grilled me on anarcho-capitalism before, so we've done all kinds of good stuff over the last couple of years. I think there's about 50 episodes on that feed. Um, so, so feel free to check that out. Uh, but for now, until next time, sign off. It's Matthew. Thank you. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcatcher or share the podcast with a friend. You can find out more information about the Obey podcast at anchor.fm slash obey podcast or on Twitter at the Obey Podcast. Until next time. Next time.